joining me today. I have a really cool special guest that is actually of a Canadian origin. So go ahead and introduce yourself to our to the wonderful listeners out there. Okay, so my name is Tally, and I am a nurse at a primary care clinic for people who use drugs um, that is also a supervised injection site in a large city in Canada. So take us through, take me through, what does that mean? Because the first time when we talked about it, just kind of, you know, talking about, you know, your background and your specialty, I was totally not confused, but I just had never heard of it before because it's not something right. in the States that we have. So so if you can, take us through a little bit about what it means and, and how you actually found yourself in that role. So basically, this is a clinic I work for has existed for a while, but it's a clinic. I uh, started out as an HIV clinic. And as more and more people started getting HIV from injecting drugs, it became basically a clinic for people who use drugs or people who um, are involved with street level sex work. So people who are at risk of getting HIV, um, usually homeless people. So as part of a service to, uh, the patients who we have, and also to kind of combat this opioid, you know, epidemic that's been going on in North America for the past few years, they opened up a supervised injection site a few months ago. There's been basically, I think, 20 some that have opened over the past year in Canada, just all across Canada. So my regular, so it's regular, regular primary care clinic, like a street clinic, like people have in many cities, but we have a room where people can go and inject uh, drugs uh, in front of a nurse so that just in case they overdose, there's someone there who can revive them or, or keep waking them up or giving them oxygen or naloxone just to make it, it's not safe. It's never safe to inject illicit substances into your body, but to make it a, a little safer for people. So they're not, you know, they're not dying. You know, we have, we had like in Canada, like six or 7,000 people die of uh, opioid overdose last year. In the States, they just released numbers. It was 72,000 people who died of opioid overdose last year. So it's it's a huge thing. So, you know, we know that our clients, you know, need a lot of help with their health care. But if they're dead, it's not, you know, what's the point, right? So just keeping them alive is the first thing. The thing I was just struck by was just how on the forefront it is. Because even just hearing about you describe it, I'm like, a safe place for people to inject drugs? Like, how does that work without there being legal stuff? And, and yeah, that so, sort of thing yeah. creeps into my brain a little bit. So there used to be, so it started out kind of um, the first one in Vancouver in 2003 started out just not being very legal. And there were all these court battles and everything. And finally, um, you know, basically, you know, Canada's universal health care, people decided, you know, Health Canada, the organizations decided that this was something that we could do to save people's lives. So it was actually unethical and probably illegal to keep this kind of a service from people. So um, at the beginning, it was really illegal. And it was, you know, something people were scared of. And now it's become kind of not totally accepted by everyone, but accepted certainly by healthcare providers. Uh, across the country. So a normal ish kind of thing. And there are no legal consequences. Like in your if you're in the room, like the cops are never going to come the cops don't hang around our clinic because they also don't want people dying on the streets. That's not they don't want that either. So if people are doing it inside and are 
you know, able to have clean supplies and are fairly safe in doing it, that really benefits. People have just decided, you know, it benefits most people, you know, benefits the community that we live in, you know, so that people aren't dying on the streets and it benefits the healthcare system in that we don't like, we never send people to, uh, to the hospital really. Like we have to give them multiple doses of naloxone for that to happen. So we can usually avoid that. So that makes it kind of cheaper and more efficient. And people generally agree that it's a good thing. Not everybody in Canada, but it's, it's accepted by most, you know, major health organizations. That it's a service that we need to have. And so just in the, just to kind of help people along who don't have a bit of a medical background um, yes. with naloxone and mm-hmm. Narcan and all that fun stuff, mm-hmm. they're synonymous. Yeah. If you can, cause you're, you're, I see it a lot in terms of what we use in the ER for overdoses, right. but you see it in a different way in terms of how yeah. you guys use it. Yeah. So Narcan or naloxone is a drug that can reduce, that can reverse um, an opioid overdose. So if it only works on opiates, but it works really well in terms of temporarily acting as an antidote to your morphine, your hydromorphone, your heroin, your fentanyl, your oxycodone, all of those things, it will temporarily in- deactivate those substances in your system so that um, you're able to breathe again. Because what people die of in opioid overdoses is they're not breathing. Because all of these drugs, if you take them too much, you stop breathing. That's what you're dying of. So what we do is we start by just if people are, you know, not breathing as much as they should be or looking kind of sleepy, we just wake them up and talk to them. Sometimes we administer oxygen to them. uh, And if they really just drop and stop breathing or just turning blue, uh, that's when we bring out the Narcan. We start uh, bagging them, giving them oxygen. And so far that works. When you get the, when you get people right when they inject, it saves them. So no one's ever died in a supervised injection site in Canada or anywhere in the world. Um, because you see people go down. If you can get them breathing, get them oxygen as soon as possible, they're not going to die. When you compare that to the amount of people who are just dying on the streets, it's really like a no brainer. Right. And that's usually what yeah. we see in the ER is the people exactly. who've been, you know, a good Samaritan comes comes by, sees a person on a street bench or in a car and, you know, they're not breathing or they can't wake them up and they call the police and the police respond. And there are more and more protocols now for police officers to give uh, Narcan on scene while they're waiting for EMS. Because right. the thing with Narcan is that for the most part, it's not going to hurt to give it in terms right. of trying to figure out what's wrong with a person that might not be breathing that you suspect might be an right. overdose. Yeah. So they don't know. I mean, it's hard to tell when you find someone, but it's not, there's no real uh, negative consequence to administering it. I mean, the only problem that you have when you're just relying on these, they're really great bystander programs or having given the cops in our hand. The only problem is, is that, you know, you don't know how long someone's been down. Right. So, you know, that, and that's, that's always the the thing is that if it's been too long and someone's not breathing, as you know, you can't come back from that sometimes. So the, the, the great thing about being in the supervised injection site is that you see, you know what's happening with the person. You don't have to wonder, is this an opioid? Is this uh, really alcohol? Is it benzos? Are the three different things on board? People tell us what they're going to inject or what they think it is. If they know, we definitely know if it's going to be uh, like a, a sedative or a stimulant because people are really clear about that. 
So we have some idea of what to expect and how closely to monitor them. And we can act really, really fast. So I have to ask you this one. Like recently (laughs) there was a video that came out about there was a lot of overdoses that were happening just in a park in a day's time frame. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that, like the 76 overdoses. I did. Overdoses. So that was, yeah, yeah, so that was, um, the, so there's a lot of weird news reports that came out. There's some kind of suggestion that that was an opioid overdose, but most likely it was just a synthetic cannabinoid. So K2 say, or like spice. K2 or spice, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So those are these like cooked up in a, you know, in some chemistry lab uh, substance that kind of, it, it really isn't like pot, but they spray it on. Um, like herbs just to make it kind of look like pot. It doesn't really act the same way. But so far, they, what they do is they change the chemical po- compounds so that it's, you know, to, just to catch up with the legal systems. They change a little bit so it's not necessarily illegal to sell this one thing and they change it again. And those things are really kind of dangerous. They can cause internal bleeding. They do cause psychosis. But they don't think that was a fentanyl overdose at all just because the way people were acting. First, the news came out and said, oh, yeah, it's an overdose. And people jumped to the conclusion that it was an opioid overdose because that's what we're hearing about. But the way that people were acting, it, it probably was just this kind of scary. It is this really scary substance because there's no antidote. Um, right. And people people, people think it's safe it. because they're like it's pot, but it's not pot. Pot is you know more understood and safer than this synthetic pot. Yeah, you're not gonna start internal like people were just like going a little bit wacky, you know, like and bleeding internally and definitely um, needed to be oxygenated as far as I can tell. But it, you know, if you don't know what the substance is, this is that's what's really scary about you know doing drugs right now is we don't know. Um, what's in it. Drug dealers are kind of, they change things. People are making stuff in labs in China. People are bringing stuff up from Mexico. We're not really sure what's in all this stuff. And so people are making stuff stronger and stronger in order to make it easier to get it into North America. You know, that's why we have the fentanyl and the carfentanyl. It's because it's so strong, you can just import a very small amount and then you cut it and then you can make a ton of money. But they're not chemists generally who are cutting the drugs. So they it's an inconsistent amount. And that's a big part of uh, why people are dying, because it's not, you know, they're using drugs that they don't, the strength of which they can't uh, really, you know, rely on. And so people aren't trying to kill themselves. They're just, if you're addicted to heroin right now, most of the heroin in North America is fentanyl or is mostly fentanyl and it's not cut in a consistent way. And so you just, it's like Russian roulette with, uh, with knowing how much uh, opioids are actually in your drugs at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, is that something that you guys see as, as far as just like a difference in how people are presenting or has it become a little bit more scary when people don't quite come around because you're like, is this really, you know, did they just use heroin or are they using something that's cut with like three different other things? Totally. So what we have now in our supervised injection site is a mass spectrometer and we can actually test um, what drugs are in people's drugs. It's hard to tell. So the science isn't quite there with the machine. We still need to work on getting concentration, but at least we can tell people this is not heroin. This is fentanyl. They usually know, but we can tell them that, especially in in things that you wouldn't expect to find fentanyl in, like we're finding fentanyl, carfentanyl and crack. We found fentanyl in people's meth. And those aren't things that you wouldn't expect so then we have people have an idea like, oh, I need to watch out when I'm taking this because it might have a, rea- I might have a reaction that is not 
um, that I wouldn't predict from it. So, but it is kind of scary because, you know, fentanyl in large amounts, you know, causes things that are a little bit more difficult to handle than a heroin overdose. Like fentanyl causes like chest wall rigidity. It makes it really hard to do CPR to, to uh, bag someone can cause some kind of weird twitching and flailing around, which makes it hard for people to manage. They don't just pass out. They act a little bit weird. So, you know, this is all kind of new, you know, like being able to watch people, well, not totally new, but new for a lot of the world, be able to watch someone inject drugs and, and know what the reaction is and, be able to um, react to it. We're definitely finding new stuff out every day. We find new drugs, weird things in people's drugs all the time. So what's some of the more, I guess, strange things that you've encountered? Yeah, I think, um, well, those synthetic cannabinoids in things, um, that is just pretty much getting into a few different kinds of drugs, into people's molly, into some of the party drugs. So that's something you wouldn't necessarily expect all of the uh, heroin has fentanyl in it to the point where people are just now basically injecting fentanyl so that was something that just wasn't happening two or three years ago and and it's definitely killing people we know that like for example cocaine is often cut with a weird substance called levamisole which is like a deworming product i have no idea why that's in there but really it's this crazy vet medicine thing like people will put things and drugs just to get it to last a little bit longer. And uh, those things are not great for you. The other thing that I is a big thing is that, that people are injecting their um, uh, prescription ADD, ADHD meds. And that's a huge thing that while those drugs are kind of safe and that they're prescription medications, they weren't meant to be injected. And some of them are really harsh on people's veins. And the high only lasts for a very short period of time. And so they have to inject a lot to uh, make it through the day. I did not expect that's something I did not think was so prevalent, but it's really out there because it's cheaper than Coke. Well, so, so that's that's also kind of my follow-up question or another question I had for you was, you know, what was the learning curve for you coming into it? How many times have you been like, wait, what? Where you've done <laughs> sort of like a, no, I'm no like way. That. I'm like that every day. Well, first... The learning curve, you know, I started out as a nurse on a medicine floor in the hospital and I saw like a little bit of everything and, you know, but um, going into doing harm reduction most of the time, first people's stories of how, what it's like to live in the shelter, what it's like to be homeless, that you can never take your shoes off. Someone's going to steal them. People are going to steal your stuff all the time, steal your meds, everything that's not attached to you, even something that is, that's going to be stolen. I learned all about, well, I mean, I don't, I didn't know how to cook drugs. Now I know how people prepare their drugs. I know how to make a crack pipe. I know I'm not good at it, but I know how to do it. I, know <laughs> I was going to say, what, did you practice? Like, did you go home I, and well, practice? Well, I did. I wanted, I wanted to know how people did it so that. Uh, I guess so. If you um, want to try to understand. Exactly. And it's hard to do. I mean, I don't, it's just like, I think any other specialty in nursing where if you go into oncology, you have to learn about these things. And if you go into labor and delivery, like I was saying before, like that's a whole different specialty and there's different devices doing kind of street medicine with people who use drugs. There are, there are things, diseases that keep on presenting. I've seen like every abscess you can ever see, cellulitis, endocarditis, uh, I learned a lot about HIV, a lot about hep C. Which are all common things that happen with needle very, sharing very and, and dirty needles, especially with IV drug Absolutely. use. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. With IV drug use and with, um, you know, with poverty too. I mean, it's, yeah, absolutely. you know, these are things that are, they're hard to avoid. So, and, those, and it's interesting because there's not a class in nursing school that's like, <laughs> it goes over all this stuff. So I kind of had to learn just by seeing people and talking to the patients is where I really learned about what it's like to do certain drugs. People tell me because they're doing them right in front of me. So they can tell me what it makes them feel like. They can tell me why, you know, they might be injecting things, their opinion, like what do they think they're treating, what kind of uh, need it's filling. And and that's all interesting information, like from the patient, you know, that I hadn't really thought of that. That's where I learned most of things, definitely, is from the patients that I have. Well, and that's something, too, is that, you know, I only see a, I see the emergent side, I guess, of that population. Right. And... At the same time, I try and get to know them as people. And I think it's really kind of awful how in medicine we're so quick to classify, oh, this person's homeless. And we just, some people change how they take care of a patient just because of the fact that, yes, they don't have a home and they're, you know, living on the streets and they, they use drugs. Why are, but why, why treat somebody differently who comes in with some sort of symptoms like an abscess or a cellulitis than somebody else who comes in with the same sort of symptoms because there's the homeless person and it happened from them shooting up versus somebody else happening just because they got like some sort of bite or whatever. Like we're still trying to help the same people get to the ultimate goal of being better and being rid of it. So I always, I don't know. I always kind of have a different approach to, even when people say, oh, this person's a frequenter, this person's a frequent flyer, they're always here for the same sort of stuff because they're always shooting up in the wrong spots and they keep getting infections. Well, I don't care. I don't care if I see them twice in like the same day. You know, I would rather them be able to talk to me as their healthcare liaison in a way that they don't feel judged versus withholding something that could really impact their care down the line. And I think people get so afraid to do that in the hospital because people just are like, oh, you're an IV drug user. You are worthless or maybe not worthless, but they just write them off. And for some people, they do say that they're worthless or they're hopeless or it's just the same old thing they're going to get out and use again. Right. Well, so and that's the thing is that when you see I mean, that's the thing about working in the hospital is you see people at their worst and you don't see people necessarily. You see some people get better, but a lot of people, especially people who come back. You're assuming that no one, no, no one ever gets better, you know, and because um, all you see I is do, sick. That's all you see is like the worst. You see people's worst day. That's what we do. We see people's worst day. And I see people get better in terms of maybe, you know, some people do stop injecting drugs. Some people, maybe they don't stop injecting drugs, but maybe they inject less. Maybe they stop doing sex work that they don't want to do. Maybe they are housed. Maybe their life is stable enough that they um, are able to see their children again or maybe hold some kind of a job. So there's people, their life gets better, like they would say gets better. Um, It doesn't always end in death and misery. It does take a lot. I mean, we say that people um, relapse, you know, seven times for every success. You know, sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes you know, you're, you've stopped injecting drugs for six months and then you start again for a month and then you stop for a longer time, just like quitting smoking. You don't just give up on someone. It takes so long to quit smoking, but eventually sometimes people do. And I do see people 
Um, even the people who keep on injecting drugs, but they, if they come around and they're dealing with their healthcare and they're taking their HIV meds and they're clearing their hep C, like that's a success story to me. And I see those all the time. I definitely see that happen. And I like to be a part of it and to like to let people know that the healthcare system is there for them, even if they feel like the rest of the world is not there for them, that there's someone, you know, that cares about their health. Well, and it needs to shift in the hospital to how we treat patients that come in that we know are using. We're not going to fix their drug use in the hospital. So we need to be able to address the fact that if you're staying in the hospital, we need to initiate opioid withdrawal uh, protocols as fast as possible, because that's right. going to just benefit them in the long run in getting the antibiotics they need. Because so many places right. I've worked as a traveler, I've been so frustrated by that lack of there being something standard, something that's there across the board. And yeah. then people go, oh, of course, they're going to get to the floor and they're going to sign out against medical advice. Well, maybe they wouldn't if we decided to step in and help them out with trying not to get sick from withdrawals. And yeah. I know with alcohol withdrawals, yes, those can kill you. And that's the reason why you have CWAS and you have all those protocols. But mm -hmm. it's just as bad with drug withdrawals in terms of feeling like shit. Right. So, I mean, yes, maybe it's not going to kill you in terms of how alcohol will, if you're coming cold turkey off of being really, really at a high level, they're addicted to it. You know, their brain is. So right. we're not going to fix you that. Feel, no. And it makes you feel so horrible that you might leave and, and maybe you're not going to drive from withdrawal, but you might leave the hospital and then die from whatever it is brought you to the hospital in the first place. So exactly. Yeah. So keeping someone in the hospital is important policies that everyone is on the same page of like how to treat people who use drugs while they're in the hospital and treating their pain and um, making them comfortable then so that it's not up to one nurse or one doctor or someone to kind of you know people need to feel supported in doing and and in being able to treat people well um instead of you know some hospitals have strict policies against one thing but not the other thing and you know ideally we'd all be on the same page and so it's an, even if you don't like people who use drugs even if that's not you don't feel a lot of sympathy if you at least know how to treat them then and help them stay in the hospital and get their antibiotics then that would be a good thing and like part of i mean that's part of the reason i think why this is kind of taken hold in canada is because we have universal health care and because we just know that preventing people from going to the hospital saves money, preventing people from getting worse, making sure they get the antibiotics just saves money in the long run. The system it works better for everyone if people can avoid, you know, an ICU stay because, you know, they're septic, you know, so if they stay and get their regular antibiotics and they don't end up in the ICU, like that's a win-win for everybody. So, I mean, do you guys, you said that you've, you've seen, you know, cellulitis and abscess and everything. Yeah. What do you do yeah. to sort of address that? Or what do you do if you think somebody's getting to that point of getting a little septic or having just something yeah. more underlying? How do you guys intervene at your level? So first, there's a lot of prevention. So there's a lot of um, kind of trying to teach people about proper vein care and safer ways to inject, like cleaning the sites beforehand, avoiding... Um, using needles more than once, um, avoiding uh, certain sites in the body that are not great for injecting. So this prevention is one thing. Um, secondly, we do, like as part of the clinic, we give people antibiotics, uh, you know, for their abscesses. Most people do not want to go to the emergency room. 
even though I want to send them to the emergency room, but they don't want to go because they hate it because they feel like they aren't treated well and they're going to wait there for 10 hours and they don't know what's going to happen there. So they don't want to go. Uh, so I often will make deals with people where we can give them antibiotics, but you know, Hey, if you feel worse, come back in two days, like come back tomorrow. Let's see what it looks like. And then I'm hoping, like, I hope that with some people I have a relationship with them that I can say, I know you don't want to go to the emergency room, but you have a fever. You've had a fever for days. This cellulitis is not getting any better. You need IV antibiotics. And so I really, I need you to go. And hopefully they trust me that I'm not just trying to cover my ass, but I'm actually giving them some really strong advice. And we give them bus tickets. We give them a taxi. I'll call the ambulance. We'll do all that. Uh, we'll make it easy for them. Just, you know, and they're usually people you usually pretty good. They've had abscesses. They have cellulitis. They'll say, I know I need IV antibiotics. I know I should go. Um, maybe I'll go tomorrow or we'll try these no oral antibiotics for a couple of days and see how it works. Or, But I, you know, my thing is I never want to send people to the emergency room unless they absolutely, absolutely need to go because they know they're not going to have a very good experience when they get there, unfortunately, and they're not going to want to stay. So if we can get it before then, you know, if I can see someone, I'm like, that doesn't look wonderful. Maybe that needs to be lanced, you know. Usually they'll listen to me because they also want to avoid having to go. But that's the kind of thing we can do. It's like you can, in the supervised injection site, I'll see people and I'm like, oh, I'm looking at this and I'm seeing it doesn't look that great. Um, and I can get a nurse to see you. We can get someone to write a prescription for you right away. And they don't have to wait and they don't even have to present necessarily like to the clinic, but I can just kind of refer them and it's, it, it can happen quick because they oftentimes, you know, they don't want to wait. They don't, they have lots of things to do with their life. Their meals are served at a certain time in the shelter. They have to go get back. Someone's watching their stuff for them and that's how they're even here. They don't have a lot of resources. So right. making it easy for them and low barrier is really the thing. Well, and then, or your, you know, their bed might be taken if they don't get back at a certain exactly. time. Oh yeah, they're exactly. They're, you know, yes, totally. Or their methadone is due, you know, like their dose. They have to show up at the clinic for this or that. And uh, people won't accept an excuse necessarily from them the way they would for someone who presents, kind of like a quote unquote normal person. So for them, you know, going and getting seeing, like getting healthcare quickly is really important and it's important for me as well because it's just going to help them keep them from getting worse. So, so in your clinic, like what's yeah. the staffing like? The staffing. So we have a few nurses and we have um, a part-time doctor, part-time NP. So mostly it's nurse, nurse triage problems. So we have the people will show up in the clinic, a nurse will see them a lot of times it's for things that we can pretty much tell what they are. Like an abscess is fairly obvious. So we do have, we do have medical directives where we can do uh, antibiotics, but often we'll call in the doctor, the NP for a few minutes and they can just write a script and go. So we can make it, make it to the people we're seeing really quickly. We do also follow people for longer for let's say their HIV or their hep C treatment as well. So then it's kind of like more like a regular clinic where you show up and you have an appointment. But the other thing we do um, is like we do, which is a huge service that we provide is, is we do blood work on our patients. So people who inject drugs have very difficult veins and they often feel really stigmatized when they go to labs because people will give them a hard time about how difficult it is to get blood from them. So we have 
we do blood work for them or we let them do their own blood work too, because sometimes some of them are more comfortable doing that. And they really appreciate that because as you can imagine, going to like a regular blood lab and having someone look at your track marks, it can be really traumatizing for people. Oh yeah, Especially, absolutely. They might they might have to be there for an hour because sometimes it takes that long to find something to, to find something that works. And uh, so having to sit through that, they don't want to do that. But for HIV for Hep C, you need to have regular blood work. So to get that treated well, this is another thing that we kind of do to make it easier for people to get their health taken care of and to actually follow up with it too without yeah without it being a big ordeal. Right. They don't have to go to 10 different places. The idea is that we're kind of a one-stop shop for a lot of those things. And that because we know that people use drugs and we see them using drugs in front of us, that we're not judging people for that. It's something that we, they don't have to hide what they are doing um, or come up with some lame excuse or something. They can just be themselves. And I hope that that is something they, you know, that makes them feel more comfortable so that they can keep on coming back to us. That's the idea. Because the idea is not just to supervise injection. Keeping people alive is great. It's very important. But it's also sure. about, connect- it's about, but then beyond that, it's connecting them to healthcare, making them feel um, like connecting them to housing. We have case managers who will help people get housing, help people get their ID, help people kind of stabilize the other parts of their life that actually will help them also help their health improve as well. And that are important to them. So what are some more memorable experiences that kind of stand out to you in what you've done? Memorable experiences. Well, I think every time I've helped someone who's overdosed has been memorable. Uh, It's you never know exactly how it's going to go. You always want it to go well. And I definitely had one where I, and this wasn't even in our site. It was outside and I gave someone uh, naloxone. They woke up and, and they said, oh, wow, that was just, I spent too long in the sun. And that's what that was. So it was kind of funny because Narcan definitely does not reverse, you know, sunstroke. So I'm not sure he was uh, fully asleep before then. I was going to say, that'd be um, a new one. Yeah, that's a, so I was like, oh, I guess he just didn't want to kind of disclose that he was using, which is fine. I just, people tell me a lot of stories. I've heard some really sad stories uh, in the supervised injection site. People will really, um, especially when there's not that many people there, they'll really disclose a lot of the things that have happened to them. I would say most people who use drugs, a great majority of them have gone through a lot of trauma in their life. And the drugs that they're using are a way that they've can stay alive. You know, for some of them, it it is it's they're self medicating uh, to treat the pain of a really difficult life. So I've heard really difficult things. I've also had some great conversations with people, a lot of people who use drugs are really uh, smart, a lot, just like everybody else and read books and we definitely have a few of our patients who know way more about organic chemistry and than I ever will or ever learn in school and can tell me the exact chemical makeup of everything they're using and know exactly which receptors is affecting in the body. And that's kind of wild because I think that people think that people who use drugs have fried their brain, but it's not really the case. So I've found I've had people give me presents, presents for my kids. Someone gave me a rock collection for my kids. So cool rocks that he had collected when he was out in the street. And uh, that was really sweet. That's great because you build like that rapport with them that it's just. Yeah. And he's a cool guy. Like I have, I mean, a lot of people, they're cool. They're, they're, you know, they're 
just like any other people that you'd see, you know, as a nurse, like some of your patients you like, some of them you don't, you have some great conversations and it's pretty much exactly the same with people who use drugs. But that was really sweet. You know, he came with the rock collection. He's like, oh, yeah, I think you have kids and these look really cool. And I picked each one of them out because I don't know what they are, but some of them are shiny. And and that was just a really kind of sweet interaction uh, that, you know, I, I don't think would have happened had I not been sitting there kind of watching him inject drugs. You know, like that he didn't he felt comfortable enough with me to kind of let some of the guard down and and just have a real moment. So that's my favorite part of it, really. So what would be the the takeaway you want people to have from from our conversation? Yeah, thinking about this, I think a couple one is that, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of people use drugs and definitely the stigma and the shame that you're putting on them. If you're a healthcare provider and kind of saying they chose this or they deserve it, it is not helpful. It is not how you'd want your family to be treated. And it is not true because no one chooses to have a severe addiction. No one chooses that. So, you know, if you're trying to make them miserable in the hopes that they'll stop using drugs, believe me, they have been more miserable than you can ever imagine in their life. And that is not how addiction works. It's a chronic disease. It changes your brain and is very difficult to stop. I mean, the other thing is just that if you, you know, especially like for the American listeners out there, like advocating for um, meal exchange for supervised injection sites, absolutely there are places in the states where they are needed, um, where there's really high HIV rates, where people are dying on the streets in crazy numbers. And I think it's important if you care about your patients that you also advocate for these things. So if you're in Philadelphia, if you're in Seattle, you're in San Francisco, you can actually be part of some of the movements to get these things going. And it's important that you do so. That's It's really important that this becomes something that is uh, available to everybody in North America who's currently affected by this opioid crisis. Well, thank you so much for joining me tonight and thank having you. a really great discussion about something that I didn't have, literally, I had no idea about until, basically, until we interacted. <laughs> yeah. And really, well, I'm you. just like, man, I wish we did have that. So absolutely, I'm going to be doing more it's research. It's going to happen. Yeah. Totally going to happen. And it's happening slowly. And um, I believe in it. And uh, anyway, it's it's fun to talk about because it's a new, it's kind of new. A lot of it's kind of new and it challenges a lot of people's um, ideas. But um, the evidence is there. I like it. I like all of it. Again, thank you for joining me. Thanks. So again, thank you to Tally for joining me to talk about the goings on behind safe sites for injections, harm reduction, and a little bit about street medicine and what that is. I know a lot of people out there might have heard about it, or even if you didn't, hopefully this is a good introduction for you for really what it's like to work in these settings. I also want to thank everybody out there for listening, especially over this past month, dealing with a little bit more heavy subject matter in terms of addiction within nursing and also dealing with, obviously, addiction in terms of what today's episode was about. So it is rather heavy subject matter for people I know and I understand that some of it can be triggering for others. So please be kind to yourselves and just take time for yourselves. And remember to believe in the good, be kind to yourself and be kind to others. 
And let's just remember, definitely within the spirit of the holidays, to look out for one another.